afternoon. Welcome to the panel on RNZ National. Sour Manning, Leona Freeman with me. Uh, another one here. <clears throat> Absolutely support congestion charging. Auckland is choking on traffic. We must do something before it's too late. So if you have just joined us, our Snap panel poll this afternoon, very simple. Do you support congestion charging? Text me 2101, yes or no. Why or why not? Uh, results, final results at quarter to five uh, this afternoon. Getting a, a mood of the panel nation this afternoon. To this now, the leaders of all three parties negotiating to form a government have met together face to face for the first time. David Seymour told RNZ the meeting was congenial and promising and they were really, really Happy with it. It started early this morning with Chris Luxon, Winston Peters and David Seymour meeting at a boardroom of the Pullman Hotel for the first three-party meeting. Seymour left to allow for Peters and Luxon to talk without Act in the room. This afternoon, Act National held their own two-party meeting. And look, just another political news while we're here. Labour MP Penny Henare has been ousted from the Tamaki Makoto seat. An official district court election recount has found today. Departing Māori's Tash Kemp won the seat by four votes. Election night, uh, Kemp has come out on top. Post-recount by 42 votes. And in the Mount Albert seat, um, Helen White has retained the seat. Labour's Helen White over Nationals' Melissa Lee by 18 votes. With us, Mike Munro, former Chief of Staff for Jacinda Ardern, was Chief Press Secretary for Helen Clark. Mike, kia ora. Nice to have you on the panel. Nice to be with you. How are you? Very well, Mike. Very well. Okay, now, what's your sense on how these talks have gone? Interesting, I think Tim Murphy said uh, on Twitter, astonishing, really, that it took 12 days, Friday to Wednesday, since the final election results, for these three men to even sit in the same room. Yeah, that is astonishing that it's taken them so long to get together. And I think that really is the point of difference from these talks in the past when the leaders uh, who are looking to form a coalition generally got together at a fairly early point. Um, I mean, that's not, not to say that a lot of work's gone on and, of course, the Chiefs of Staff would have been talking and various MPs would have been having interactions with their counterparts. But, yeah, it does, it does seem a long time. Um, so bearing in mind that, that Luxon wanted to get this over and done with very quickly, he, uh, you know, some of the talk earlier on has come back to bite him on the proverbial in some ways. You know, he talked about coming here to fix things yeah. and he's going to solve problems. And here he is, he's taken some 12 days to sit down with his fellow leaders and make some you know, material progress. From your experience and what from, from what you've gleaned in history, Mike, um, what, are, what are some of the finer points that uh, you are interested in? Well, they'll be niggling over some of the policy areas, obviously. Um, you know, th- th- these talks are very uh, heavily focused around policy and policy differences right. and how they, how they can be made up. Um, because, you know, none of us are in the room and the leaders come out and tell us uh, uh, you know, very little about what's happening around the table, we can only assume that it's the, the issues around tax, around foreign buyers. I mean, Winston, the great economic nationalist, will no doubt have some difficulties around that foreign buyers policy of the National Party and the referendum on the treaty. Um, I, I would imagine they, that they are taking, it has taken some time to come to an agreement around those points in particular. Yes, one can imagine, Mike. Let's, let's get our panellists to jump in. Mike Leone. 
Hi, Mike. Um, it must Go be qu- quite a challenge because on one side we need a stable government for the next three years, so you want these guys to get it right. But on the other side, I'd, I'd like to think, well, I hope, that um, – that they're not putting, you know, that the egos and the politics aren't getting in the way because we need to um, focus on the big issues and challenges facing the country, don't we, and resolve it and allow us to get moving. So it's it sort of seems like there's these two sides, isn't there? And I just wonder when yeah, we're well, going to start... Um, Unfortunately, though, Leone, ego and ambition will always get in the way when it comes yeah. to politics. And, <laughs> yes. and, 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 that's where, and that's where these political negotiations differ from, say, business negotiations. You know, with a business negotiation, you've got a buyer and a seller, and you've got mm. shareholders who have to be kept happy, and they, and they talk a lot about risk and they have legalistic stuff they've got to cover off. Whereas in these negotiations going on now, it's just pure, raw politics. And so ego, ambition, and suspicion <laughs> will be just uppermost in the minds of the uh, of the combatants. Oh, that's and, interesting. And, that's interesting, Mike. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's very delicate trade-offs to be made here because you've got three parties who are trying very hard to keep faith with the voters who just supported them in the election four weeks ago, and they're having to give some stuff away, you know, before they even get their ministerial warrant and sit down at the cabinet table. So it, it, it's a delicate sort of high stakes game, if you like. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, it's it, it's not easy. It's not an easy thing to do. Yeah, so, and that last point's quite mm-hmm. interesting, wasn't it? It's very different to yeah. political uh, business negotiations uh, politics. Yeah, absolutely. And good, good to um, hear you, Mike. Um, it's been a while since we talked and uh, all of this. If, yeah, if I'm good. reading this... Yeah, if I'm reading this right, um, what we've seen in the first instance is quite a lot of policy being discussed, like you said, you know, definitely um, those that are working for the leaders and those other MPs that may be assigned different tasks have been around tables, they're nutting down out all the detail, trying, I'd imagine, to find some common ground. Now, it looks like to me that we're in a relationship building phase where the three leaders test their waters, and it might not even be with respect to their differences, but just how they're going to actually represent a government going forward. So I kind of, I might be completely wrong, but I'm putting my neck out here. I, I get a sense that we haven't even got to the stage where portfolios may be discussed. What do you think, Mike? Um, yeah, we're, we're probably even close to that point, I would say. Um, th- these talks are policy heavy, as, as we agree, but, but at the same time, you've got to be thinking about the, you know, about the other factors. And, and I'm sure some some talks happened already around portfolios um, mm. because both New Zealand First and Act will have some expectations about the number of seats at the cabinet table. And mm. uh, and today when the three leaders spoke, I, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that would have been part of the conversation. Um, mm-hmm. But, but yeah, it, it just depends how long the policy lists are. You know, I was part of the um, Ardern team in 2017 that sat down with with Winston, and, and, and mm. both sides would come in with a list of policies every day, and you, and you work your way through them, and minutes would be kept by both sides, and then later on the minute takers would compare notes to make sure that you're in agreement on what had been decided. And so th- that, that process does take a long time, but but, uh, mm. you, but you've got to keep in mind that you, you've got to decide a cabinet as well. Mike, so Mike I'm, re- a, I'm reminded too yeah, that... Keep, uh, sorry, I'm reminded on. too that... Um, that back in 1996, when National and New Zealand First you know, were testing the waters out, um, they were doing the same with Labour. In this case, it's not that dynamic's not the same. Yeah, but that's right. It's quite 1990s, 
Yeah, it is. In 1996, it went until eight, what, eight weeks in duration, but what was produced was almost a legalistic document of finer points that, you know, people like um, Deborah Morris-Travers have, have written about that most recently, um, about their observations. And it's, and it's fascinating from the point of view of the relationship building is what was required and perhaps, mm. you know, to be worked on much more than a point by point and abbreviations and, and, and definitions of where their intentions is. Is that quite different to what you observed in 2017? That, that won't have changed. You know, the hard work starts once you get into government in a month's time or two weeks' time, whenever it is, and you start the day-to-day business of running the country. And that's when you've got to make sure you've got excellent relationships, that there's no surprises, that the the consultation is constant, uh, and that you're keeping faith with the agreements that that you're making uh, right now around that negotiating table. So, yeah, this is step one. Step two is is tough in many ways because, you know, once ministers get busy and once the business of government gets underway, people can start getting a bit sort of remiss about this agreement, forgetting about it. They get a bit focused on their own portfolios. Um, and that's when you know the work of the staff and the chiefs of staff in making sure that people are sticking to what was agreed becomes absolutely critical. Oh. Mm. Mike, will you, will you put your neck out and give us a date where you think they might agree? <laughs> we won't, we <laughs> no. won't hold you to it. <laughs> no. Look, I, I, I wouldn't have a clue. I, I thought you know this time last week that Luxon would have been uh, you know working to get up, to get on that plane tonight to fly to San Francisco for APEC, but that's clearly going to come and go. <laughs> now, now that that deadline's passed, if you like, you know, mm-hmm. it's probably going to be, you know, probably early next week, I would imagine. Interesting, Mike. Mm-hmm. Hey, kia ora. I really appreciate your experience uh, on this. Thank you for joining the panel. Yeah, uh, that's Mike Munro, former Chief of Staff for Jacinda Ardern, uh, saw those negotiations with, with, with Mr. Peter. Very interesting, weren't they, mm-hmm. uh, back in 2017? Also Chief Press Sec for uh, Helen uh, Clark. Now, big response to this one, uh, a next story, very big response, um, and that is this congestion charging. Here's just a couple for you. Uh, Maurice said Wallace sitting on the Northwestern motorway like many people spending two to three hundred bucks a week on petrol because there is no public transport alternative. Not wildly infused about a congestion charge. Another one here. When I lived in London congestion charging was effective uh, because there was amazing public transport. Mm. So um, snap panel poll uh, congestion charging. Do you support it? Yes or no? Two one zero one results at uh, four forty five. So, Auckland Council is to meet tomorrow to discuss this introduction of the so called time of use charge. That is, uh, people pay to use specific roads in peak time. Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown said. It's a simple solution that has been well tried around the world, and he imagined it would cost around ballpark three bucks fifty to five dollars. Travel outside of peak times, you can avoid the charge. Now, Scott Wilson is an expert in road pricing, having worked on such projects and studies for over twenty years around the world. Scott joins us from Sydney. Welcome to the program, Scott. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Tell us a handful of other cities around the world, three or four cities that do employ congestion charging. Sure. You've already mentioned London. There's also Singapore, Stockholm, Gothenburg, Milan, Oslo. Those are some of the 
Right. So I'm looking at London. So they charge, what, around 31 New Zealand dollars, uh, and that applies certain parts of the city from 7am to 6pm, Monday to Friday, 12 to 6 on weekends. Uh, Is there a case, however, to be made in the super city, that is Auckland, for this sort of charge? There is a case for doing congestion pricing in Auckland. I think there's been enough studies on it to show that. London is not a good example um, for Auckland, however. London's charge was very successful for a number of years. It's now considered to be a bit blunt. Um, It hasn't really kept up with with changes to London. Uh, It isn't very successful in reducing congestion nowadays because of changes in demand. So the sort of models that are a bit more sophisticated are the ones in Stockholm and Singapore where you have charges for very small parts of the day on particular roads when it's congested so people can change to other times. And it's very performance-oriented. So I, I take Singapore, and there is a lot about Singapore that's different from Auckland. But how they do pricing is very clever. They reduce the price if demand is low. They increase it if demand is high. They review it every three months, and they make sure the traffic flows. That's what matters to them, and that is a that is a, a, a good model uh, for consideration for Auckland. Okay, let's focus on that before we go to our panel, making sure the traffic flows. Let me tell you a little story, Scott. It was raining yesterday afternoon after my, my mm. show, the panel. It took me... 35 minutes to travel two and a half k's by bus in the rain to go from the Sky Tower to the top of Simon Street yesterday. Extraordinary, two and a half k's. Will congestion charging um, make flow better? It should make flow better. You don't need to reduce traffic by that much to make a very big difference to traffic flow. And the best example is during school holidays where people notice that traffic is better, but you only need to knock 5 to 15% of the cars out of the traffic to make it flow at pretty much free flow conditions. So you need a small amount to change. And a proportion of the people who do change are people who may not be taking trips at that time that they need to take, or they can go by other modes, or simply move one hour either way. It should make a difference, but you're still going to have problems if there are breakdowns, if there are road work. You can't fix everything, but it is a very important and useful tool uh, for a city to have. Let's bring in the panel, Leone. Uh, Scott, I was just interested in those cities you were talking about because particularly a Stockholm example sounds, you know, quite quite a, a positive one. But what's the impact? Um, do people then go on to suburban roads? Because I'm thinking about Auckland. If they're saying we're going to toll or congestion charge the motorways or parts of the motorway, then people would just get off the motorway and therefore all the side roads and suburban roads would be more congested. It's called rat running. Rat running, yes. Yeah. Yeah, there, there are there are ways to address that, and there are some parts of the motorway network where you can do that and minimise that risk. So you need to do the modelling to do that, but you can put in rules in place so that you pick up a number plate at one point in the network and you come out to the other point in the network and you say, well, you should have been on the motorway then. You, you've tried to rat run around that, so we, you avoid the local traffic being picked up and it needs to be on those roads, but you can pick up people going past various points, and they've done that in Gothenburg. They had Part of the problem in Gothenburg was that they wanted to capture the through traffic and not capture the local traffic because there were pensioners going to the post office and that sort of thing. And they've, they've worked right. out there are business wow. rules you can put to avoid that problem. Okay, so you can get down into the granular of congestion charging. Mm. Selwyn, your thoughts on this? 
Yeah, I'll take a bit of a contrarian view just for an exercise here. I think Wayne Brown in the first instance has read the tea leaves. He knows that New Zealand is tipping into a pattern of user pays and this is one of the first that we're probably going to see coming off that plate. Now with, with all of this, now I'm kind of thinking, okay, I can hear all the merits of that, but it's all about service, isn't it? And if the equations do not actually come into alignment as predicted or modelled, then there could be quite a backlash. And I'm talking things like what services on the transport highway are going to be excluded from that or included. Um, for example, are taxis and Uber and all of these others going to be penalised with $5 per trip congestion charges? Ah, and what does that mean? Um, the other thing would be what has the Auckland Mayor Wayne Brown calculated into this as a failure rate, meaning how many people are going to default on that charge and also from the point of view of if congestion continues on or there's a backlash from the uh, Great South Road and other arterial routes um, resisting that in increased flow, what kind of backlash is there going to be from a lack of service from the point of view of um, protest and others? And I'm kind of thinking, remember those great big protests against broadcasting licences all those years ago? You know, that was huge. You know, um, the, so resistance to this needs to be modelled out too. It'd be very, I'm sure it has been. It'd be great to hear that side. Scott? Yeah, I, I, it's very, very important that... Uh, the things that, that matter the most with this is the public, the people who are going to pay must see that there are benefits to doing so for it to be acceptable. And I think a gradual approach is really important. The The last study, which is called the congestion question, which is on the Ministry of Transport website, looked at it for four years and it proposed the first stage to be a downtown quarter at peak times, so just just around the CBD, not so traffic on Spaghetti Junction wouldn't have to pay. And that would almost be a pilot to demonstrate, look, this is how it will work, this is what the effect will be, and then roll it out to bits of the motorway network and, and wider than that. So you do it on a, on a very incremental approach. So you get the buy-in, you iron out any bugs, and um, you start to just make it more and more acceptable. I think that's that, that's an important part of it. On Ubers and taxis, look, I'll take the fairly purist view that I would charge them unless there was a good reason not to. Um, you know, they're charged in Singapore and Stockholm and the like. They're not charged in London. Um, the, the black cabs aren't charged in London, and I think... That's a bit of a problem because it's, they circulate, they cause a lot of traffic and pollution as well for the ones that aren't electric, and there's a bit of a bit of an issue with that. But but I think you start from the point of having as few exemptions as possible, um, except for public buses, maybe drivers with um, you know mobility issues. You you don't want to force <laughs> them out of the cars because they've got no choice, and then think about some some other special cases well, well, beyond well. that. Mm. Scott, I was just wondering, you know, because again, that, that that statement you made about that uh, those who pay should benefit, um, have you seen where the congestion charges then gets allocated for provision of public transport? Because the challenge in Auckland is there are areas where the, there's not great public transport and there's not great yeah. alternatives. But Good if question. we knew that uh, this money would go into funding that rather than, say, for example, funding council debt, then people would be probably more open to the contribution of that payment because they could see some outcomes. Yes, it's very important that there is agreement on what is done with the revenue yeah. and for it not to be seen as just a tax for general spending because you'll just get a backlash for that. Mm. And there have been, an example of Gothenburg 
almost it almost failed there because they decided to use it to pay down debt for a remodelling of the railway station for intercity trains. And people had a backlash against that. It's like, well, well, I mean, I'm driving to work. I'm not really getting the train to Stockholm. I don't see why that matters to me. So it has to be related to urban transport or you just have it as a... As, as a dividend for everybody in, in, in Auckland, so they get a bit of money back is another idea. But certainly in um, most of the cities that have done this, they have used at least part of it for public transport. Oslo mm-hmm. used it for building um, a few roads and for public transport, but the people could see that it was going into transport right. in their region, and that was more acceptable. Just going to keep going with a couple of minutes because we've had such a big response uh, on this congestion, uh, many, many uh, pieces of feedback. By the way, we are talking to Scott Wilson. He's an expert in road pricing, working on projects around the world and studies for 22 years globally. Um, almost uniformly, Scott, we've had uh, feedback like this. How do they expect Aucklanders to get around with a congestion charge without offering good public transport alternatives? I'm baffled. All the cities you've mentioned have amazing Mm. public transit. How would you respond? I think there's two things there. I think it's very important that you ensure that you do have reliable public transport. It's absolutely a critical part of the equation. Congestion pricing can help with that. And and one of the things that has been the experience elsewhere is when you reduce congestion, you can provide more bus services with the existing number of buses because they operate more reliably and they're not stuck in congestion. So you actually get the capacity out of the network. It, It frees up part of that. One of those unseen benefits from you no longer have to put so many buses on to have the same frequency or you have more so you get that but it is an important part of the equation that's why the congestion question work recommended that when you do the first stage you've got to wait till crl is open in downtown auckland so that's a key part of the equation but i think there are other parts of the network the eastern busway clearly the northwestern busway i think that has to be part of the package Mm. Scott, it's been a pleasure having you on the program. Uh, really, I hope we can return to you another time. Uh, for now, there's Scott Wilson there, an expert in road pricing, having worked uh, around the world in many cities uh, on uh, congestion pricing uh, for over 22 years there. So you've listened to that. So um, wrapping up the SNAP panel poll results at uh, quarter to five, do you support congestion charging or not? Yes or no? Two one zero one texts cost uh, twenty cents. It's quite a um, so they meet tomorrow about this, uh, Sawan. I didn't. F- I forgot to ask you. Uh, actually, ask you folks directly, Sawan. Are you willing to say a yes or no? Whether you or not you support it? No, I don't support it at all for many of the reasons that I've put in the contrarian response. Um, one of the other things is, is um, coming back to a philosophical thing, and I wonder if there's even a legal opportunity for Auckland Council to assert this type of thing, considering the roads were built largely with public money, so therefore public access right. was the contract that we had at the time. It's an interesting angle. Okay, so Sal Manning, absolutely no to congestion charging. Leonie Freeman. Yeah, I would say yes, uh, but I'd like to see the money going towards improving roads or public, improving public transport so it gets ring fenced. And um, 
you're right, Selwyn, about, um, you, you know, we have to sort out actually who gets the money because I'm not sure whether it would be Waka Katahi or Auckland Council mm. or a combination. But I think it's one of a, a number of initiatives to deal with this issue in the city. And whether we like it or not, we've got to find alternative funding mechanisms um, and and look to create better public transport and, and try to fund it. Selwyn Manning, yeah. no. Leonie Freeman, yes. Where do you stand? Two, what about one, you, Wallace? Zero, one. I <laughs> haven't got time. It's headlines. Here we go. Marama. Kia ora. Welcome well, back. <laughs> Thank you, Wallace.